Grace and peace to you in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For those of you who are listening uh, to this broadcast, um, our service was originally supposed to be at Hayeswood Park this week. Unfortunately, with weather that we've had, we, uh, we weren't allowed to do that. It's very unfortunate because the, the, the setting would have been perfect for the Old Testament lesson that was given today. It was almost as if God had opened up the clouds and said, Adam, here's your sermon. And I was sort of in a, oh, okay, God, thank you. And then God literally did open up the clouds and we were not able to have our worship service at the park today, which would have been really neat and uh, very Wesleyan if you think about it. However, uh, all is not lost. If you can use your imagination... Imagine that you are at Hayeswood Park or wherever you're hearing this. Imagine you're at the nearest park, worshiping in a wilderness of sorts. Now, we've tamed it a bit. Probably the park that you have in mind uh, maybe has some, some places where you can barbecue. Uh, trees are, are knocked down so that you can have uh, plenty of area to play in. Probably there's a walking path somewhere around in there that uh, is a man-made walking path. So it's not typically what we would think of as wilderness, but it is, uh, it's outdoors, it's nature. We're, we're in a more organic setting than we insulate ourselves from when we're inside a building. Well, today's Old Testament lesson tells us that the Israelites were wandering in a wilderness of sin, a wilderness of sin. Now, if you're like me, your immediate thought is probably that Moses is giving a really neat metaphor here. That this wilderness of sin is a way of saying the Israelites are so sinful and so as they wander through it, it's a wilderness of sin. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And I say unfortunately because I built about half my sermon around that idea early in the week only to realize that I wasn't doing the text any justice. Um, it is not a metaphor. The wilderness of sin is a literal place, literally referred to in the Old Testament as wilderness of sin. Between, it's between Elam and uh, Mount Sinai. So, Moses did not place this wonderful phrase in the Bible for a pastor to uh, have a great sermon illustration. I wish it were so, but it is not. That said... There is a sense, I am still going to stick to the metaphor even though that's not explicitly what Moses meant. There is a sense in which sin is a wilderness. What do you think of when you hear the word wilderness? What are some thoughts, some images that are conjured up in your brain? You know, maybe you have Wizard of Oz uh, sort of thoughts in your head. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. So it's an untamed place. It's a place that uh, we haven't taken and uh, made, fashioned in, with our hands, something that's livable. I like the way that the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines it, specifically uh, in regard to the land that the Israelites were going through. It is land that is basically wild, non-arable, and sparsely inhabited or unfit for permanent settlement. Catch that last phrase, unfit for permanent settlement. Sin is a lot like that in the Christian life. Sin is not fit 
for any kind of settlement in the Christian life. Very simply, deliberate, unrepentant sin just can't have any place in the Christian life. The Christian will wither away. The Christian will spiritually die, just like the person who makes their home in the middle of the desert will die because they don't have sustenance. Wildness, the type of wildness that is described in the Bible, it parches for a lack of thirst or for a lack of water. Spiritual sin parches. This wilderness withers faith. This spiritual wilderness withers faith for lack of any sort of true spiritual sustenance. Sin can no more nourish the Christian than the sands of the Gobi Desert can provide life-sustaining streams of water. Wilderness is not meant for human habitation. Sin is not meant for human habitation either. It can do nothing but kill us spiritually. It ultimately destroys a vital living Christian faith. You know, Austin O'Malley perhaps said it best when he wrote in Keystones of Thought, our sins are like a carousel where the same decorated dogs, pigs, and goats ridden by the foolish come around again and again until the machine wears out. Put in a more contemporary way, maybe we would say that stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's so tempting. Each time we see one of our sins, and I bet you have one of your, I I heard a pastor once refer to it as a signature sin. That's the one that you get hung up on. It's so easy as we see that carousel of sin spin round and round and round to jump on board. But each time we pay our fare, each time we pay the cost of jumping on, we've slipped one notch farther from the Heavenly Father. Not because he moves, but because we remove ourselves. Well, this week the Israelites have jumped on that carousel again. They're grumbling again. They still haven't learned. They're not going to learn for the most part. There will always be some of the Israelites who get it. But for the most part, this is going to be a dense people. We don't need to go over the whys or the implications again. We did that last week. We do, however, need to recognize the dangers of cyclical unrepentant sin. The grumbling and the disobedience of the Israelites will eventually lead to wandering in the desert for 40 years. Many of the people in this group are never even going to see the promised land. Their idolatries, their grumblings, their hardened disobedience against the ways of God keep them from receiving God's ultimate blessing. You know, Paul, in this week's uh, epistle lesson, he gives us a good reminder, a good reminder about how we should approach the life of faith. He tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This mindset was far from the hearts of the Israelites. They presume, they presume that God should favor them. And friends, 
I'm not just talking about the Israelites. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about anyone. One of the biggest dangers in the Christian faith that we can face is when we presume that God should favor us no matter what our response is, no matter what we believe, no, no matter what we do, we presume to have God's blessing. That's the sin of the Israelites here. They rarely considered their own response. They rarely considered where their hearts were. They just presumed that no matter where they were spiritually, God should come as sort of like a cosmic genie to clean up their messes and take care of them. Rarely is there any consideration given at all as to whether or not they were becoming a people, becoming a people that God could gladly bless. You see, God's blessings are always there. God would have given the blessing of the water to a people who came lovingly and openly. But the scriptures certainly seem to imply that there's a certain grudging reluctance to give them the water, at least on the part of Moses, because they were so hardened. Well, last week we spoke about a faith that changes us. We spoke of how God not only uh, claims us as righteous, he he not only declares us righteous, but he also makes us righteous. It is again in today's epistle reading that Paul writes, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, when we receive the assurance of our salvation... By accepting that Christ's work really is for me, as we spoke about last week. God not only forgave us for past sin, he also gave us a new spirit. We were simultaneously given the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God's not content to just allow people who place faith in him to wither away in continued sin. He's not content to let them go through life without a power of the Spirit, a power that draws them into deeper holiness, into greater fruition through the relationship of God. We don't just want to be saved for the world that is to come. No, no. We want to be delivered on earth right now from the sins that have beset us, from a spirit that is in rebellion against God. And God promises that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. You see, a salvation that is a one-time decision only but does not have any fruit, that's no salvation I've never been able to see in the scriptures anywhere where that's salvation. And yet that is precisely how so many people live their Christian faith. We tend to think of this, um, we tend to think of the Christian faith as something where we make a decision one time and then maybe God does something in us, maybe he doesn't. But the decision, the intellectual apprehension of what we've just done becomes the high point of the Christian faith. No, that's the entrance. That's the thing that we do in order to start moving and really living 
really receiving life. In my experience, when we tend to whittle the, 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 the Christian faith down to that one-time experience, we begin to see the rest of the Christian life really is just an encouragement to kindness. We start to think that kindness is holiness. Now certainly we want to be kind. We want to be respectful of other people. We want to give as much as we can to charities. We want to extend ourselves with our time and our effort to those in need. The Christian life without those qualities is not the Christian life. We have to understand, though, that those are responses that flow from hearts that are purified. Hearts that see life and the world around them clearly. Hearts that have a godly sense of priority. We give freely because God loves us. And in being loved, we learn how to love others. You know, one of the sad things about the church nowadays is that we've really lost a sense of just how audacious the Christian faith is. The audacity of the Christian faith is that we believe the God of the universe is powerful enough to purify our hearts and urge us past, purge away a desire for sin. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? I'm well aware of how countercultural this claim sounds, even in the Christian church. I can't get past the reality, though. When I read the scriptures and I see what the church was doing in the first three to four centuries, all they were talking about, all they were focused on when it comes to the interior life of the believer is purification. Purification. Amidst all the activities of the church, there was an intense desire And I'm going to use a strong word here, but I want you to hear it. It's important. Amidst all the activities in the church, there was an intense desire to be perfected in the Christian faith and in a Christian way. That is a strong word, perfected. I bet it was strong to the people who heard it when Jesus said it. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's strong medicine. At the very least, it's a strong diagnosis. Well, I want to ask you, friends, can we do that while we live in disobedience? Is it possible? Let's consider today's gospel lesson in John. Is it the son who said the right things? Yes, father, I'll go work in the vineyard for you, but then didn't do anything? Or the son who initially said, no, father, I'm not going to go work in the vineyard, but then changed his mind and went to work in the vineyard. Which one of those two sons was blessed? It was the one who initially resisted and then went out and did the work of the father. It can't be any different for us. I can't find any assurance in scripture, any assurance anywhere in all the span of Christianity save the last 100 to 200 years where a person who mouths loyalty to God but does not, does not 
live as though the words have meaning, I can't find any evidence that that person can be assured of their salvation. We don't get to jump back on that sin carousel again and again and again and again without consequence. Those images on the internet that you think nobody knows about, the gossiping that goes on at the lunchroom, words you say to your spouse and your kids that you'd be ashamed to know people in the church know about, I pray you're not settling for any of that. I pray you're not getting comfortable with it. That you're just kind of thinking, well, you know what? Uh, I'm just a poor old sinner. What am I going to do? I pray that you're not comfortable with it because you shouldn't be comfortable with it. Those sorts of things have no room in the life of the Spirit. And not just those sorts of things. It's not like those are the signature sins. They're just examples. But examine yourself. Examine yourself on a regular basis and ask yourself, what do I have in my life that is not in keeping with the Spirit and have I grown comfortable with it? We can never grow comfortable as a Christian people with sins that keep us from the heart of God, from knowing the heart of God, from experiencing the fruit and the life of the Spirit. So if you struggle with the sins that were just mentioned or whatever your sins may be, whatever difficulties you have that keep you short of receiving and achieving gospel holiness, I pray that your heart's desire would be to overcome through the power of Christ any outward action that keeps you from the heart of Christ. And if through the Spirit's power you have overcome the outward action, I pray that you will continue to live as one expecting to be entirely cleansed of even the inward desire for unholiness. And if you've been entirely purified through the Spirit, entirely sanctified, I'd like to speak with you afterwards because I could use some pointers. Friends, the idea is this. If you have anything in your life that you know is not God-honoring, that does not test to the spirit that lives within you, I hope you're turning away from it. We live in a religious culture right now that speaks a lot about making a decision for Christ. And I think that's great terminology. I, I don't have a problem with the terminology. I do sometimes have a problem with the way that the content is sort of understood or assumed. God does not tell us, make a decision for me once, and then you're good. If anyone can find an example in Scripture of where that shows up, I'm open ears. I've tried to argue it before. I can't find it. It's more like the Christian life is more like, as I read Scripture and as I understand the church has understood it through the years, it's more like, Look Christ in the eye every single morning and decide to live by the Spirit every single day. Every day make a decision for Christ, not one time. It doesn't matter to me if you remember the date that you were quote-unquote saved. You were saved 2,000 years ago. It's a wonderful thing when you open your heart for the first time, but the life of faith isn't wrapped up in that first time. 
The life of faith is an ongoing relationship in which God is working in you and then you are living out the things that God has worked into you. See, friend, God really will make us perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. This is a teaching the United Methodist Church confesses. In fact, this was probably the teaching that brought me back to the United Methodist Church, at least as far as doctrinal standards go. Anything short of that, I don't want it. Because anything short of that, we're basically worshiping a God who has no power, cannot affect real change in the life of the believer. Every single pastor in the United Methodist Church, when they're uh, submitting to ordination, is asked this question. Do you expect to be made perfect in this life? The expected answer is yes. This doesn't mean that we'll be completely free from error. There will be things that we'll do where maybe we're just ignorant of sin. Maybe we uh, make a mistake in the way that we deal with a person where we're not willfully trying to hurt a person, being willfully obedient. Those things will still happen. We're still human. We do still live in a fallen world. It does mean, though, that we can reach a point where God has worked in us so fully that our heart is entirely in tune with what he wants. In other words, we're becoming holy. We are sanctified to the point that we no longer want sin. We only want God's holiness. I believe we can achieve that. By our power? No. No, it's impossible by our our power. It's by God's power in us. And it is by our cooperation with the work that God would have us do. You know, I think most of us want to believe that this is possible. Really do. It just sounds too good to be true. It's almost like the person who really wants to be forgiven for their sins, but they just can't believe that God would really, really forgive them of their sins. We'll take that another step farther. I think most people really want to believe that God can lift them out of the mire of their sin. That God really can transform their hearts so fully, so entirely that they don't even want sin anymore. They're living in perfect joy because they're living in perfect holiness with God. I believe most people want that. The reality is, the Christian message is this. God can transform you into the person who no longer deliberately sins. I know that sounds crazy, but here's some other crazy stuff that we believe. We believe that God came to earth. We believe that God put on human flesh. We believe that God died for our sins. We believe that God rose on the third day. That's crazy stuff. It's crazy. Now, if we believe all those crazy things, why would we stop short of believing that God can transform us so fully on the inside that we no longer desire sin? Why do we accept our own wilderness of sin rather than experiencing and accepting a spiritual land of milk and honey. My friends, perfection in the Christian sense, not perfectionism, 
but a spiritual sanctification where you have been entirely changed from a spirit of sin to a spirit of holy love. It's there for the taking, my friends. Jesus doesn't give a command like be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect as a spiritual gotcha. He's not playing cat and mouse. He's not trying to get you to think about things deeper than the, 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 than the statement that's just right there. It's really just another way of saying it as Jesus doesn't give a command and then leave us incapable of fulfilling that command. If you expect it, if you submit to God's holiness in your life, if you're willing to submit yourself to God's cleansing work, he'll do it. He will cleanse you of sin. He will restore you to holiness of heart and action. Brothers and sisters, I know it's tempting to settle for less, but don't you do it. Don't do it. Don't settle for wilderness when God offers fullness and milk and honey. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you not only declared us righteous, you not only declared us not guilty, but you also create in us a spirit of holiness that testifies to the fact that we are no longer guilty. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glorify you. Teach us what it means to love purely, to love fully, to take every thought, word, and action captive to the gospel. Lord, don't just make us a people who believe. Make us a people. Shape us into a Christian people. Help us to glorify you more and more through our spirits and lives. And help us to learn what it is to love the way that you love us. For it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.